So we're told in the, in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, it's a verse many of you will know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God works all things, not some, but all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who love God, <clears throat> to those who are called according to His purposes. It's easy to say, isn't it? It's easy to read, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God <clears throat> takes all things in our life, the good, the bad, the ugly, some things that come and blindside us, some things that are there because of our own making? Can God take all those things and use them for our good? Do you believe that? Not just say it. Not just think it. You really believe that right where you are right now right in the middle of the stuff you're stuck in, is God going to use that for good? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Today we begin the last section of Genesis that follows a man named Joseph throughout the rest of the book. <clears throat> Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And as we look at uh, Joseph's story over the next few weeks, we want to keep coming back to that question. Does God really use all things for good to those who love him, to those called according to his purpose. As you're finding Genesis chapter 37, let me set the context. Remember, the Bible is a book of history, but it's not a history book. So in the Bible, it's not a history textbook where it's going to say this year this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. The Bible is a book of history. It is real. It's based in history, every story. And it's God using certain stories to explain himself to us and explain how we should respond to him. Does that make sense? Not a history book but it's a book of history that God uses to reveal himself and teach us. So I say that because sometimes we'll move from chapter 34 to chapter 37, and a lot of years pass by, a lot of things happen, and we need to know what they are in order to understand what's going on in 37. So real quick, I wanted to set the context of some things that have been going on uh, in, uh, in Jacob and his family's life. You remember <clears throat> 20 years earlier, he had, he had left home. <clears throat> he had killed, he had, uh, he had stolen his, his brother's birthright, Esau's birthright. And, and Esau, his brother Esau, wanted to kill him. And so Jacob left. He, he ran like a fugitive and he left with absolutely nothing. Now, 20 years later, two decades later, he's returning home. He's a husband, he's a, he's a, he's a father, and God has made him an extremely wealthy man. When he had left the Mesopotamian area to go back to Canaan, he left Laban, and he kind of snuck away at night, and Laban came after him, and Laban was going to destroy him and then take his family back. Laban was his father-in-law. But God spoke to Laban and said, don't touch him. So God protected Jacob from Laban. And then he had to meet Esau, because Esau's land was on the way to Canaan. So he thinks Esau is going to kill him, but God protected him. And so his brother, he thinks, is going to kill him. Esau runs to him and embraces him and hugs him, and they weep together, and God delivers him there. Now he's back in an area called Shechem, 
And a lot of things happened in his family before we get to verse or chapter 37. First of all, devastating event happened. When they move into Shechem, they begin, they begin to kind of get, become friends with the Shechemites. And Dinah, his daughter, is out one day with the ladies of the land. And the ruler of Shechem is named Hamer. And his son attacks Dinah and, and violates her. And, and, and after that despicable act, he, he wants to marry her. So Jacob finds out about it. And Hamer, the ruler, comes and has a meeting with Jacob. And then Jacob's sons come in. And they're not very happy with the way Jacob's handling this thing. And so the sons say, here's what we'll do, Hamer. You're an uncircumcised group. We only marry those who are circumcised. And if all your men will be circumcised, then we'll let you have Dinah and we'll intermarry. Well, the Shechemites said, that's a good deal because then we can, we can interact with all their flocks here to do, a wealthy group. Well, it was a deceitful plan. Scripture says that three days after the circumcision, when the men were in pain, Levi and Simeon, Dinah's brothers, went in and massacred every male, killed them, put them to the sword, and then took the women and children. It caused great tension in the family. Jacob said, what did you do? You've made us a stench in the nostrils of all the Canaanites. At that time, uh, the whole area of Canaan had these different pockets of people, the Shechemites being one of them. You made us a stench. They're going to come and destroy. What you have done, that's going to destroy our family. And the brothers said, Jacob, you didn't handle it well. You, you let your daughter become like a prostitute, and you didn't, you didn't even strike back. So there's all this tension in the family. God then sends them from Shechem to get them out of there, sends them back to Bethel. And uh, look at chapter 35, verse 5. Then they, the, the word was out. People were going to go after Jacob and his family, the Israelites. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so no one pursued them. So God protected him again. Instead of becoming annihilated, God put a terror on the, God put a fear in the hearts of all the Canaanites, and they didn't go after him. And then when they got back to Bethel, God reinstituted or, 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 or reminded better Jacob of that promise. Remember when he had left running for his life, he stopped at Bethel and God gave him that promise in chapter 28. I'm going to make you a great nation. He reminded him of the promise again. Now he reminds him in chapter 35, look at verse 11. And God said to him, I am the God. I am God almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come from you. and Kings will come from your body. The land I gave Abraham and Isaac, I'll also give you, and I will give you this land, I will give this land to your descendants after you. And then God went up uh, from him at that place where he had talked with him. So he remi- over and over, he's reminding Jacob, I am with you, I'm not going to forget you. Even when your family makes some mistakes, I'm going to protect you. Someone said we need to be reminded a lot more than we need to be taught. And that's what God, we see God doing that to Jacob. Jacob. I'm not telling you anything new, but I'm reminding you of something you need to know. I am with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. Right around this time, 
Jacob's wife that he loved, Rachel, gave birth to another son. She had an extremely difficult pregnancy. And while she was giving birth, she knew she was dying. She died giving birth. She named the son Ben-Oni, meaning son of my trouble. Well, Jacob said, I don't want my son growing up with a name that reminds him every time someone says his name that his mother died while giving birth to him. So he changed his name to Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin, son of my right hand. And then there near Bethlehem, Jacob buried the the love of his life. That, That woman he had loved so much when he served seven years for her, it went by just like that. His life was never quite the same without Rachel. Not long after his death, his oldest son, his firstborn, Reuben, slept with Jacob's concubine. Now, that was just, and the word got out. Sin, sin always gets out, right? You don't do anything secret. Sooner or later, it comes out. That was not only a, a foolish act of lust. It was, it was Reuben trying to assert himself as the ruler over the family. He, he took the place of his father with this concubine. He uh, was trying to preempt the authority. And later, he's going he's to lose his legal status as the firstborn. Of course, Jacob is incensed by this. When Jacob had turned, returned back to the promise and his mother was gone, remember, uh, he was a favorite of his mom. She was already dead. He never saw her after he left. But Isaac was still alive, so he got to spend some time with his dad. Isaac died when he was 180, and both uh, Esau and Jacob come back to bury their father. So, uh, so without that tension, boy, there's a lot of funerals, so there's a lot of family tension in there. But uh, they had already dealt with that. So now they come together, and they bury uh, their father. Okay, so here we are at chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Now, there are a lot of ways to outline Genesis. We've talked about that. But if you look at your sermon notes, there's a literary outline. And ten times this Hebrew word toledot or or account is used. And there are ten accounts as you work through the book of Genesis. And we'll see that we are at the last account. We are at the account of Jacob. And the account of Jacob is really the story of, uh, of Joseph and how he's responding to his brothers. Look at verse, the middle of verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah, <clears throat> the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and, uh, and, and, he, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, at first reading, it just seems like uh, Joseph is the spoiled snitch, right? No one likes no one likes a tattletale. No one likes an informer, but that's not the point of this report. The brothers were doing something that was evil. This is a report that brought back what the brothers were doing, and it was evil. Whatever they were doing, it wasn't right. Whatever they were doing, they were putting their family's reputation at stake. Whatever they were doing, they were they were putting their family business at stake. Whatever they were doing, they may have been putting their whole family at stake, and so. Jacob, the leader, needed to know. And Joseph brings back this faithful report about the brothers doing something that's putting us at risk. Let's just stop there for for a point. 
faithful service sometimes means sometimes means speaking out. There are going to be times in our life where, where we see something that is unquestionably wrong. It's not a judgment call. We know that it's wrong. Maybe it's in a family. Maybe it's in a church. Maybe it's in the workplace. But keeping silent about evil does more harm than good. Now, granted, it is not the popular thing to speak out. But when we see something that's not right, if we don't speak out, it's going to come out sooner or later. And if we speak out, maybe we can catch it earlier before a whole business blows up or a family blows up or a church blows up. And so it's our responsibility to speak out when we see something like that. Man, how many families try to keep an addiction secret until it all blows up? How many families have this secret sin going on? They're not going to tell anyone because, man, we don't want any, anyone to think, you know, we got something going on in our family. Now, what family doesn't have something going on in it? They don't get help. It keeps hushed and hidden until it blows up. Think about the companies. You, you businessmen and women could, could give a list of companies, like an Enron situation, where stuff was going on that shouldn't be going on, but no one said anything for years, and all of a sudden, finally a whistleblower, too late, and the whole company blows up. Lives impacted, still lives impacted by Enron, plus 10, 20 more companies that you could name, because no one said anything. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Silence is agreement. If God has placed you someplace where you need to, sh- to, to tell, and, and evil's going on, and you need to tell someone about it, silence is agreement. Maybe God has you at that place to, to keep a a group or a company or a family or a church from blowing up. So speak out. Faithful service sometimes means speaking out. Well, when he speaked out, when he spoke out, not speaked out, bad grammar. When he spoke out about his family, um, they weren't very happy about it, you can imagine. Look at verse 3. They weren't very happy about a lot of things that happened in Joseph's life. Uh, now, Israel, that's Jacob, remember his name got changed loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's a problem because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Uh, How many of you have heard of the robe of many colors, right? Well, we don't know if it was a robe of many colors. I don't know exactly where that came from. It was a richly ornamented robe. It was probably a robe that had sleeves down to the wrist and then reached down to the ankles, probably opening more like a tunic. Richly ornamented tunic. When his brothers, verse 4, saw uh, that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they couldn't speak. They could not speak a kind word to him. Now, here in this incident, it's not just a gift that was given to Joseph. It wasn't that um, Jacob gave a nice gift to Joseph. The robe was a symbol, a status symbol in the family. Jacob was saying, my blessing is right here on Joseph. I don't care about the rest of you. Joseph is going to get the inheritance. Joseph is going to be the leader of the family. 
I, I have given him this symbol, not just a nice gift, and it was a nice gift. I've given him this symbol of authority. I'm going to allow him to be the leader of the family. That Jacob loved Joseph more than his other brothers was an issue, and sometimes parents struggle with that. But to give him the tunic was over the top. Now, it's not breaking news. Second point, not breaking news here. And I won't spend a lot of time with this. But we've seen this over and over in Genesis. Favoritism destroys families. That's like parenting rule number one. As soon as you have more than two kids, this applies. Favoritism destroys families. I get it. Kids have different personalities. We have four. They have different personalities. They have different gifts. They make different life choices. Sometimes they like the things that I like, and so we can gravitate toward them. Uh, you know, maybe it's dance or music. Sometimes when they're older, they live closer, and so you get to spend more time, get to see all the grandkids more often. Some, sometimes you agree with them in their values. Sometimes you agree with them in their politics. Sometimes you agree with them in their faith. But as parents at any stage... Favoritism destroys families. And we've got to guard against that. So our kids know it when it's happening. Look at verse 5. Now, Joseph was a favorite. But he could have kept his mouth shut more than he did. He has a problem with sharing some things he really doesn't need to share. Look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream... No problem with that, but he told it to his brothers, and they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were, we, were, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaf gathered around mine and bowed down to it, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and guess what he did? He told them about it. Verse 9, he had another dream. He told his brothers, listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your, your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this in their mind. Now, in the Old Testament, God spoke to a lot of people through dreams. It's interesting how he does that. Sometimes he's speaking to, to his people. He spoke to Laban in a dream, remember? Don't lay a hand on Jacob. The dreams were real. And some of the dreams we're going to see were prophetic. This was God chose uh, Joseph over the brothers. And sometimes God does, we see that a lot. God chooses the younger over the older. But Joseph didn't have to tell the story. He could have kept it to himself. And he fueled the fire of hatred and jealousy, and it came back to haunt him. The, the loathing for Jacob among his brothers, it was, it, you could feel it in the air. But I want to get back to this point. God chose Jacob to lead. The dreams were prophetic. He was and would be the leader. So here's the point I want to make. 
when God chooses you to lead, get ready to take some shots. When God chooses you to lead, get ready to take some shots. There are many leaders in this room. When I go around Pittsburgh, uh, I hear all about you guys. And from that standpoint, I'm proud to have you in this congregation. Man, we can do some cool things together. And so that's cool that, you know, uh, when, when, when I'm out and about, I hear about uh, things that you do in business and education and medicine. It's cool. We just don't meet here and come together. You guys are, you guys are ministering the whole week long. That's awesome. So you, you're, you're movers and shakers. I get that. Businessmen and women in, in medicine and education leading the way. And I know, I know you're a quick study, and I know you have a great education, and I know you're, you have top-notch training, and I know you are tremendous hard workers. And I know that God has given you everything you have. You are not in the right place at the right time. No coincidences. God put you in the right place in his time. And if you're a leader, you are God's leader. And that doesn't mean you're not going to take some shots. And I say that because a lot of times we believe if I'm doing what God wants me to do, if I'm in God's will, it's all going to be smooth sailing, right? That's what we're told. The whole prosperity gospel stuff. All smooth sailing. I'm not going to have any health issues. I'm not going to have any family issues. Man, it's just going to be, it's going to be like heaven on earth. Read the Old Testament. It's not heaven on earth. It's going to be heaven one day, but it ain't here. You're going to take some shots. You can be in God's will and still be taking shots. If you're, God chose you to be a leader, you're going to take some shots. Look at verse 12. Now, as brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to, them, so he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring back word to me. And then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. Jacob is saying, Joseph, go check them out. See what they're doing. They, they may be doing something again, that is, is putting us at risk. I need you to go check them. So uh, Jacob left, Joseph rather, left Bethel, this area, this area right here. The, 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 they were supposed to be uh, tending their flocks in the area of Shechem. For some reason, and no one knows why, they weren't there. But when Joseph gets there, he, uh, he's, he tells them, he, he's looking for them, and he finds this guy out in the field, and the guy said, well, I, I did see your brothers. They were here, but they, I heard them say they're going to Dotham. And so Dotham's about 13 miles away, straight this way, and Dotham was already an ancient city in that time, so everyone knew about it. Why they were in Dotham, we don't know, but that's where they're headed. So Joseph treks the 13 miles north to, to find them. Look at verse uh, 17. So Joseph went after his brothers, the middle of verse 17, and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him 
one of the cisterns and, and just say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't, don't shed his blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him and take him back to his father. Remember what Reuben had done? He had slept with his father's concubine. He was going to lose his legal status. So maybe Reuben's motivation is to say, I'm going to gain that favor back to my father. I'm going to say what my other brothers did. I'm going to rescue him. My father will know that I'm on his side. So, verse 23. When David came to his brothers, Reuben wasn't there at the time. He's off tending sheep somewhere else. What's the first thing they did? They stripped him of his robe. They hated that robe. Someone asked me after the first service a great question. Why was he wearing that robe? He's out in the desert looking for his brother. Why was he wearing it? Because he's rubbing it in their face. He's reminding them. He probably didn't go anywhere without the robe. And the first thing they did, they stripped that thing off of him. You can imagine the aggressiveness they had when they ripped it off of him. And they took him and they put him in a cistern, a dry cistern. There was no water in it. And they left him there thinking about how they were going to kill him. And right when they were thinking about it, they saw this caravan of Ishmaelites coming down, headed with camels loaded with myrrh and balm and, uh, and, and spices. They were actually coming down from an area called Gilead. And in Gilead were these trees where the fruit and the stem of the tree made this great balm for medicinal purposes, known in the area, the balm of Gilead. That was the best. So they had it on those camels, Ishmaelites, remember who Ishmael was? Remember? Abraham's other son, right? Ishmael then Isaac. And so the Ishmaelites are coming down. They're also called the Midianites, another name for them. They're coming down. And, and Judah, Reuben's not there, so Judah stands up and he says, I know, let's not kill him, let's make some money off of him. Let's just sell him as a slave. So they pull him out of the cistern and they sell him to this caravan of Ishmaelites going down to Egypt for 20 shekels. So here's Joseph. Think about it. One day he has his coat on, has these dreams that he's going to rule. He's got the coat. And now his hands are probably tied in front of him with a rope chain with other slaves following camels through the desert down to Egypt. And you probably tell Joseph, yeah, but you know the verse, all things work together for good to those who love God. And at that point, Joseph would have said, you got to be kidding me. How in the world is this going to work out for good? How? Some of you are there right now, aren't you? You're in the middle of the story. You don't know the rest of the story like we do here. You're right in the middle of it. And you're wondering, God, I don't know what you're planning. I, I, I know Romans 8.28, but how in the world are you ever going to work this out for good? We're going to keep talking about that as we get to Jacob's story. The rest of the story, very quickly, 
His brothers take his robe that's already been stripped up. They rip it up some more. They go kill a goat. They put the blood of the goat on Jacob's robe. They take it back to uh, Joseph's robe, rather. They take it back to Jacob. They say, Father, sorry, but they didn't tell him we sold him into slavery. You can't do that. So here's the robe we found. We don't know what happened to him. You probably shouldn't have sent him out on that journey anyway, but we don't know what happened to him. I guess he's been killed by a ferocious animal, and of course, Jacob is devastated, devastated. His favorite son, the son of his favorite wife, is dead, he thinks, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my grave in mourning. This is going to kill me. I don't even want to live anymore. I'm just going to mourn until I die. One more verse. We'll stop here today. Meanwhile, the Midianites, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt, not, not as a field slave. They could have done that, but God's ordained in this thing. To Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Here's my last point before we take communion. God's plan is often, often forged in hard times. God's plan is often forged in hard times. Now, no doubt it was hard for Joseph as he's being dragged along behind camels. Can you just, just imagine the, the filth, the dust, not knowing the, the despair, not knowing where he's going? Betrayed by his brothers, not knowing if he's ever going to see his father or family again. And God's, we're going to see, God's going to use all that for his good. God's plan is often forged in hard times. Now, the challenge of this for us is we don't know the rest of the story in our lives, do we? We just know we're in hard times. But the encouragement is God's not wasting your time. God's going to work it out. I don't know how. I don't know when. But he never wastes our time. There are no coincidences in the spiritual life. He's using the, the, the things today to mold you and make you into the person he needs you to be tomorrow. Turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Great passage as Paul's writing to the Corinthians as we get ready for communion. And Lou Motter and one of our elders is going to lead us here in just a second. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. I love that. It's hard, but we're not crushed. God's on our side. We are, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're confused. We don't know how in the world this is going to turn out for God's good, but our good, God's good. But um, we're not going to despair. God's in control. We're persecuted, not pleasant, but we're not abandoned. God's always with us. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We're going to get up again. Verse 16, therefore, do not lose heart, though inwardly, therefore, do not lose heart. Though inwardly, we're wasting away, yet outwardly, we're wasting away, yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. They don't feel light and momentary now, right? One day they will, when we look back, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on the stuff in front of us, 
but on what is unseen, God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's fact, God's presence. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God's going to be there for us. The greatest example of someone going through a hard time and God working it out for our good is who? Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to die for our sins so we could have an eternal relationship with the living God. He's our example. He's our Savior. He did for us what no one else could do. But he's also our example that God uses hard times for great good. And he's going to do that in our lives. As you take communion today, I ask you to think about three things. I ask you to thank God for sending his son, Jesus Christ. Thank Christ for, for dying on the cross for you. And then as you're holding the cup and the bread, you may be going through some challenging times. Or maybe you're going through some great blessing and you're saying, God, you know, what do you, what do you mean to do with this? This is, this is just too cool. Say, God, I, I want to just surrender myself. Hard times are great times. How are you going to use this for my good? What are you doing in my life? And, 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 and ask God to speak to you as you're holding the bread and the cup. Father, thank you for our time. I pray, Father, that you would bless this time of communion in Christ's name. Amen.